Psalm 118, and then we want to turn to Matthew 5, if you'll get ready to do that. I want to talk to you about the day in which we're living. We're living in one of the greatest days in the history of the world. And I like this verse in Psalm 118 and verse 24, and it's my text. This is the day, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in this day. Then turn with me over to the, uh, the book of Matthew for a moment and chapter 5. A day had arrived for Israel. They had seen their Messiah face to face, though most of them did not recognize him. This was their day, our day, a special day, for God had arrived on the planet. And he was to bring them a message in which he told them to pray for an event, to pray for a time. They asked him to, how shall we pray our prayers? And he said, begin every prayer like this. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're not praying to get out of here to get to heaven. We're to pray and become the answer to our own prayer to bring heaven to the earth. And he lived like heaven. He lived like a man who had been there, and he had been there. He created it and was coming to live before us in a culture like heaven lived. And then he told them how to do it. He gave them instructions. The Bible says he went away to a mountain, sat down with his disciples, crowds, how many that is, I don't know, but crowds followed him. And all of a sudden he sat down and began to speak. And he said this, this is the way he began his sermon. It was culturally incorrect. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You just don't link poor and blessed together. You're not blessed if you're poor, and if you're poor, you're certainly not blessed. How in the world could he say that? I'm going to talk about that this morning. Second, he said, blessed are those that mourn, for they'll be comforted. He's not very much of a motivationalist, is he? Blessed are the meek, for the meek shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for the merciful shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. 
Rejoice and be very glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in this manner they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how shall it be salty? Father, take your word and bless us with an understanding this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to kind of stick closely to my notes this morning because I want to be sure I get across to you what I'm trying to say. What if there were a community of people, perhaps a whole town, or a nation, or a church, or a people that lived like the community of heaven lives? Jesus said we were to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he inferred that we're to be the answer to that very prayer. I ask you a question, do we pray like that? How do we envision that? How do we envision bringing heaven to the earth? What if that community were really the manifestation of God's son on the earth? And it filled the earth with the glory of God because he lived inside of them. Can that happen? Will it happen? The scripture says it will. Have we made it happen? Let me give you a few what ifs. What if we lived in a community of believers where everyone communicated with people looking up at them instead of down at them? Jesus said that to us when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. When you're poor, you're always looking up at someone. You consider them greater than you. Is that what he meant? What if we lived in a community where everyone lived out of pure motives and every single person was a peacemaker? What if we lived in a community where everybody dropped their differences, agreed with their adversary, and loved their enemy. That's really something to think about, isn't it? What if we lived in a community where everyone settled their differences by mourning for their own behavior and shed tears of repentance and joy as we became one with everyone with whom we had divisions? What if we were really the salt of preservation in all our human relationships with the light of pure communications of a city set on a hill that everyone could see? Well, that's the culture of heaven. Would you feel comfortable if you lived in that culture? What if you were really the glory of God and the manifestation of the true sons and daughters of heaven on the earth? What if you became the prototype of the kingdom of God on the earth? Three things tell me what that culture is like. One, a culture of love, a culture of honor, and a culture of respect. 
you know, I'm going to use a term this morning. I think I've used it here before, but I think the Bible talks about salvation differently than we think about it. There's a scripture in the book of Colossians that says this, having redeemed everything, everything in heaven, everything on the earth, by the blood of the cross. Now I know that Jesus shed his blood to redeem me, but he also shed his blood to redeem everything. Cosmic salvation. I like the living translation. It says it like this. And by him, God redeemed everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on the earth by the blood of the cross. I believe that God had a major dream for his world, for his entire universal creation. That dream is not just for us to be saved individually, get ready to go to heaven when we die. Yes, that's one of God's dreams, but not his overriding dream. For instance, let me quote a couple of scriptures. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the book I, from the book of Colossians, I just read it to you. He redeemed everything in heaven and earth by the blood of the cross. So in the next few moments, I want to take you on a journey with me, a journey of discovery. What is God prophetically saying to his church today? What is God saying about the scripture, thy kingdom come? I've been asking God how to say what I'm going to say this morning. And I want to tell you several things I'm not going to say. I don't want you to discover some new kind of exciting doctrine that will divide you from somebody else. That would be a disaster. I don't want you to discover some kind of new eschatology, last day events. I certainly don't want you to discover something that's going to elevate you above other Christians. <clears throat> this search in my heart brought me to an understanding inside of my spirit that the purpose of God is to fill the earth with his glory. Look at the words of Habakkuk. I think I've said this before here several times when I've been here. All the earth shall be filled with the glory of God, the knowledge of the glory of God, so much to the extent as the waters cover the sea. In other words, the glory of God will be the atmosphere of the earth. That's God's purpose. That's God's dream. And then the words of the Apostle Paul, the correlating New Testament scripture, the fulfillment of that. Here's what he said. To whom God was pleased to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, among all the world, among all the non-believers. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery that God wants to fill the earth is Christ in us to fill the earth. In other words, the way the earth will be filled with the glory is through you. How do we do that? The purpose of God in these days is the fulfillment of that verse. You are to be the glory of God that fills the earth. Now, 
when we become the fulfillment of the glory of God filling the earth, we bring the culture of heaven to the earth. I ask God, what is the culture of heaven? I found two things. Number one, that Jesus lived like heaven. When he was here, he did a number of things. Some of the things disturbed me. For instance, if I was a good fundamentalist here on the earth, I would kind of dislike or disagree with everybody that didn't have my doctrine. Boy, did Jesus destroy that one. He found a centurion. Do you know who centurions worshipped? They worshipped the emperor. He was a man worshipper. He had whatever church they had, he went to the church that worshipped Caesar. And Jesus looked at him and said, this man has the greatest faith in Israel. Wow, does that blow your mind? How do you do that? Jesus representing the church that he created. He was God. He created the church. And while the church was there raiding, raiding to stone the woman taken adultery, he reached out to her and embraced her and accepted her. Strange for a religious prophet. I want to tell you that I think what happens and what's happening is Jesus is living the culture of heaven, the culture of respect, the culture of honor, the culture that is so much different than our culture here on the earth. Now, let's talk about salvation for a moment. Understand that salvation is for me, for man. His eternal redemption for my soul, my eternal being, that I might live forever with him in heaven instead of in hell. I understand that he died for me. Understand that I was redeemed personally from my sin by the blood of the cross. He paid the price for my salvation. I understand that. But then I keep thinking in these other terms. He also died for everything, for my culture. He wanted me to live like things are done in heaven. That's part of his redemption. He wanted to bring me out from the culture of the world and bring me into something called the kingdom of God. I was to be delivered from that and brought over here. Then the Bible says something interesting. The Bible says that all of creation groans for the manifestation of the sons of God. When you think about that, what does that mean? It means that the storms we endure that destroys things on the planet. It means the rubbling of creation that is awaiting to hear something. What are they waiting for? What creates the trauma on the earth? Because the world and the creation waits for a people who are the manifestation of the sons of God. Creation groans for us. Not only, not only other people who need Christ, but all of creation groans for that. I'm not sure I understand what that means. I, don't know that's, I only know that's what it says. And then Jesus comes and he says, 
I want you to pray a prayer. The prayer I want you to pray is this prayer. I want you to pray every time you pray, Lord, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Bring this culture of the heavenlies to earth. And you can't pray that without praying that I want to become the answer to that culture. Now, I have to understand this whole theology of the kingdom of God because we're delivered from the kingdoms of this world, how the world lives, how the world reacts, how the world does things into what hopefully is a brand new culture, the kingdom of heaven. How did the world get like it is? It got the, the, the way it got, and just give me a little, little theological tour for a moment, it became like this because of a rebellion in heaven called the rebellion under Lucifer. And the Bible says that Lucifer was one of the three archangels. He took with him a third of the angels, a third of the people that ruled the whole universal creation, the planets, the stars, the constellations. And he was cast down to a planet called the Earth where he set up something called the gates of hell or the government of hell. And though God used, ruled from another place, Satan, Lucifer, now ruled from a place called earth. So God concentrated on the earth because he must redeem it back because it's the capital city of hell. And one of the reasons we fight so many battles on this planet over culture and over how we live and how we do things is simply because this planet was originally taken over by Satan and then Jesus came to the planet called Earth as a human being and died or paid the price with his blood to redeem the capital city and everything else. Redeem it by the blood of the Lamb. Now, how is this going to happen? How can the church, and I don't think it's ever been this in the 2,000 years of history. I think what they did, Jesus said, I want you to go to an upper room. I want you to wait for the promise of the Father. And when you receive the Holy Spirit, you shall be endued with power. They saw that. Peter and John experienced that power from the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the upper room. They're going down the street, and they're passing a man who's been lame from his birth. And they instantly said, I've got something inside of me. I've got a power inside of me. I've been endued with power. I've been endued with something called the Holy Spirit. And I want to say something to you, sir. I don't have silver and gold to give you, but such as I have, such as I possess, the power inside of me, rise up and walk. And instantly, two things happened. They discovered the might of their power, and the man discovered health once again. They understood that. But I think the place that we have never discovered this power in all the history of the church, because we've done horrible things with the church. We've fought battles with people. We've even had crusades in which Christians killed people because we thought we were better than they were, because we've never discovered really what it is to live in this culture of heaven. I believe we're going to live in a day 
when we will be called back to a new upper room in a way we've never been called before, and we're being called even in worship this morning, to come and worship God and live like God and be in His presence, that He might endue us with a new power to live the kind of life that Jesus lived on this earth. Do we pray that prayer? Here is where the theology gets me. I look at the prophet Habakkuk, and he says this amazing scripture. It just boggles my mind. I constantly think about this. I think about it 24 hours a day. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God to the extent that the glory becomes the earth and the earth becomes the glory. The earth shall have that, and we all say, well, that'll be when Jesus comes back. Not necessarily. I believe there's coming a revival of such proportions that we will see that happen even before Jesus comes. The earth should be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. And then Paul the apostle comes along and says, let me describe how that's going to happen. It's going to happen because Christ is in you, the glory of God is inside of you, and you as a person, and you as a church, and you as a body of believers are the glory of God on the earth. Creation doesn't groan for Jesus to come back. Creation groans for you to be revealed. We will fill the earth with his glory simply because of one thing. Because we outlive the glory inside of us. Now, Jesus wanted to talk about that. And he wanted to tell them how that was going to happen. They didn't understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They didn't understand the upper room. They hadn't been there yet. But he was prophesying how their lives should work after they received that experience. And first of all, he lived it before them. The first thing he did was to live the culture of heaven himself on the earth. And then for three years, he talked about that culture. One day, they're out in the, in the area somewhere near Jerusalem, and he, in the Holy Land, and God is there in the person of Jesus Christ. And the disciples are around him and crowds are following him because of the miracles. And the disciples and he both realize that he needs to tell them about this. So he gets up and the Bible describes this scene. I, I can't even imagine what he looks like. Remember, this is God. This is the person that created the heavens and the earth, that spoke the universe into existence. Every star, every constellation, everything there is in the whole universe. A rebellion took place in that universe. Third, the, 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 the universe rebelled against him. He came back to earth to redeem the entire universe. Not just us, but the entire universe. And now he stands up and tells me, tells the world for the first time, what heaven looks like. He begins to draw a picture of heaven. And this is the amazing way he begins. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, I have always believed that that was an understanding of salvation, that we have to recognize we're a sinner, 
before we receive Christ. I understand that. I still believe that. But Jesus was also talking about something else. He was talking about an attitude, a way of thinking. Heaven is a culture of love, of honor, and respect. Hear me for just a moment. How long since you as a person have recognized that good communication is when you speak up to somebody and not down at them? Now, Jesus was going to be sending these people to everybody around the world, to all kinds of people, people of different religious beliefs, people that didn't agree with them. And he talked about things like, agree with your adversary, love your enemy. How are we going to touch people if we don't recognize that we have to address them up instead of down? Blessed is the person who considers himself not above somebody, but honoring of somebody. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm not better than anybody else. Just because I'm a preacher, that doesn't make me better than somebody else. I'm with all of you. I must respect you. How do I do that? How do I come to that point in my life where everybody I address, even if they're different than I am, if they're a homosexual, if they're a lesbian, if they're a same-sex marriage, if they've had an abortion, or they're an abortion doctor, if they create abortions. All of these people that do what I consider are ungodly things in my universe, in my world, how do I address them? Jesus does it interestingly. He looks up to the Roman centurion, the worshiper of the wrong God, the one that believes that Caesar is God, that totally obeys Caesar. And after the centurion tells him about his faith in God, not just Caesar, but God, because he obviously knows there's another God, he said, I understand you, Jesus, Understand that you obey your heavenly father and your heavenly father has power to heal my servant. And so all you have to do is speak the word. My servant will be healed because I understand your authority. Jesus looks at him and says, you Roman? I don't look down on you. I look up to you. He looks to the Jewish people and he says, I am a Jew. But this man has the greatest faith I've found in Israel. He gave him honor because he deserved it. How do we do that? You know, the, the living translation of the Bible or the amplified translation said, blessed are those that are poor in spirit 
And it says it like this, blessed are those who are not spiritually arrogant and consider themselves as nothing. That's the way heaven communicates. No matter how good we are, no matter how much we have, no matter how much salvation we have, how much baptism of the Holy Spirit we have, how much divine decrees we've had over us and how many prophecies we've heard, we still look up to our neighbor. That's the culture of heaven. The story I've told of Mother Teresa. One day she had a whole group of young people coming from America to Calcutta. There were many of them and there were young people and, and they were all working on the streets of Calcutta with Mother Teresa. And finally, one of the young ladies looked around back at both sides of her and she said, you know, I wonder if Mother Teresa would send me home if he knew I was a lesbian. Well, somebody from the staff overheard and, and said to, uh, well, why don't you tell her? A couple days later, she was with Mother Teresa and she said to Mother Teresa, I don't know how you will feel if you know that I'm a lesbian. Mother Teresa got on her knees and she bowed in front of the young lady and looked up at her and then bowed her head and began to pray. She was silent for a long time and then she looked up at the lesbian girl and she said, honey, will you come tomorrow morning to mass and will you read the scripture? Because Mother Teresa knew something. To her, as a Catholic, the presence of Jesus was in the bread and the wine. And she knew that the place for the young lady was with Jesus. So she invited her. And the next day, I don't know what happened to the girl eventually, but she came face to face with Jesus' love. Isn't that the way heaven lives? Then he said something else. Blessed are those that mourn. Wow, you'd think he'd be more motivational than this, but this is the culture of heaven. How long since you and I had the wonder, the purity, the heart, felt emotion of knowing God was grieved by how we thought? How long since you and I passed a beggar on the street with money in our pockets, but didn't want to face it and went to the other side of the street? I wonder if we recently walked by a starving Jesus and failed to feed him. That's why he said, blessed are those that mourn. I submit to you that these sobs of mourning that Jesus talks about, this uncontrollable emotion of sorrow for how I've grieved the heart of my Lord for not thinking and accepting like Jesus accepts, are the wonderful emotion of heaven. How long since you and I have wept for the sins of the world? 
It's not just coming face to face with the starving Jesus on the sidewalk, but weeping when we went to the other side. I ask you, have you ever experienced the emotion of tears? Then he said, blessed are the meek. Heaven's culture. I've learned something in my life that every time I've had a success in life, and I don't have time to tell it this morning, it's been the result of submitting to what God said to me. The lives of every great man and woman, the Lillian Trashers, the Oral Roberts. Yes, even the Martin Luthers have submitted to God. But how do I submit to how Jesus feels? How Jesus feels about you? How Jesus feels about the beggar? How he feels for the unlovely? How he feels for the lesbian I talked about? Blessed are those that mourn, that hunger and thirst after righteousness. The absolute need we have for God. The merciful. The pure in heart. This is one I wish I had a whole morning to preach on. The pure in heart. What does that look like? What does it look like to have pure motivations? Because so few of us have them. We always have ulterior reasons we want something. We have ulterior reasons we want a better car because our neighbors will think we're, we think they'll think we're better than we are. We have wrong motivations. A couple days ago, I was with Michael Enstis, the man who heads the medical campus in Buffalo. It was his dream. Matt Enstis used to be the, uh, the producer of Saturday Night Live. And he came to Buffalo with a feeling in his heart he was to do something. And in spite of all of the, the people that didn't believe him, he believed in this medical campus in Buffalo, which become, has become one of the greatest in the United States. And we, kept, we must have talked for an hour on this one, this, this one Beatitudes. And he kept saying, the thing that's made me succeed is only one thing. The thing that's made me succeed was the purity of my desire to create this medical corridor. Everybody didn't want it. I had to go back to my pure motivation. Some people thought I could do it for money, but I can't do it for that. The thing that makes us succeed, and the reason I've succeed, is by taking that one scripture and making it my life's pattern pure motivation. He kept saying it again and again and again. Pure motivation. Why do you want to create a church? Why do you want to create a big business? Why do you want to do life? Why are you doing, how are you living your life? People in heaven live by pure motivation. Right reasons for right things. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the persecuted. Well, I don't have time to preach all that. 
But I want to tell you that at the basis of all of this is how we look at other people. I always thought of my dad, maybe uh, my dad was a very, very interesting person. He had these strange things that he did. He brought strange people home. I remember I was thinking the other day about uh, one day he brought a woman home he found on the streets. She rode the trains. She, she was one of these, uh, these vagabonds, old clothes, but she was now in her late 60s, early 70s. She was, then she looked like a very old woman with rags. And uh, I thought my dad would be interested in seeing her get new clothes, and he offered her that, but that wasn't an interest. His interest was one thing. When she's in town, she has a home in our house. I accept her. He brought another man home. I'd never forget this. He, he had a, I've often told the story because uh, he, 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 was a, he looked like a beggar. He looked like he had nothing. He had a, this old suit. It was full of, of uh, uh, food all over the front of him. Uh, he had a toothbrush sticking out of his pocket. He had a long stick with a red handkerchief and what I thought was his total life's possessions put in that handkerchief and he was just like a bum off the, off the streets. He went to a college nearby, wrapped in the back door, and they handed him some food out the door. My dad took him in, brought him to the faculty table. That's a long story in itself. One of the faculty members got up and left because she couldn't eat with such a dirty man. Within a couple of weeks, we found out he was a very wealthy beggar. And he gave the college $10 million. Interesting, isn't it? Uh, may I say to you that what I'm trying to say is this. It's time we look at ourselves in the mirror if we're going to be the glory of God on the earth. That everything we do is a matter of giving people honor, recognizing that I'm just one of you. And when I address you, I must look up. Usually I ask Wanda to come up right now, but maybe I'll just tell this myself because unless she has a microphone, do you have a microphone there? Just give her a microphone, okay? Uh, Wanda, come on up with me. Uh, one of the men that I felt in my life from what I've seen, has represented this, this thing of honoring other people. There's a man who's with the Lord now by the name of Robert Schuller, the, the creator of the Hour of Power. The first time that we met him, we were invited to a meeting with about 20 pastors around the table, uh, leading people that you would know their names. Most of them have gone to be with the Lord now. And... Uh, Robert Schuller walked in the room. Most of us had never met him. Some of them had. Most of us had never met him. And he walked in the room and wanted to tell him what he did. We were all seated at a huge conference table. And he came in 
and just kind of was very happy. Camilver sat down at the corner of the table, leaned back in his chair, and propped his feet on the table. Would you believe that? And these were distinguished spiritual leaders around. One of them was Rick Warren. You know, you, you name some of them, were, they were at the table. And he said- D.J. Kennedy was there from the church and, and uh, Bill Hybels was yeah, there. Yeah, Bill Hybels was there. Pastor of the largest Methodist church in America, the, the who's who of America. And he leaned back in his, in his chair and he said this, I have come and I have invited you to come here because I need to hear from you. And all the pastors looked at each other and some of them were saying, we came to hear from him. We came to get all the answers from him. But no, he said, I need to hear from you. He says, I'm out here in California. And he said, you're from across the United States. You have been working in the trenches of the church and you've learned a lot and I need to hear from you. Well, at that point also, his wife, Arvella, was going to be meeting with the pastor's wives there in another room. So we got up, we left, and we went over there. We were just delighted to get to know her, to hear from her, you know. And she said to the pastor's wives, I need to hear from you. It came right out of her mouth. She sat there with not one interest of trying to tell them something from the beautiful Crystal Cathedral at all. She treated everybody in that room higher than she felt she was there. To me, that is humility. One other little thing, we went up to lunch at, 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 uh, in, in the tower out there. And we had had Amy with us at the time on this conference, that particular one. She was 12. So they said, bring her up. He says, bring her up to lunch. So we went up, as I was there, my husband was here, Dr. Schuler was here, and he said, Amy, you come over here. You sit next to me. There were all those pastors, and guess what he did? He talked to her about horses. <laughs> I mean, it is humility in its purest sense of equality and respect. Humility is such an important ingredient when we come to represent Jesus Christ. One of the last things that I, I remember is uh, we were in San Antonio together and uh, Arvella came up to me and she said, Tommy, would you do something for me? Would you please call Bob as often as you can? He needs you. I don't think he needed me. Unless we all need each other. A few weeks ago, about a year ago, I was with a young man in our church. Been brought up in our pews. Had decided to take another direction in life and was united in marriage with another male. I heard he was coming back and I went to the meeting and saw him and I said to him, would you have breakfast with me tomorrow morning? And uh, 
So, and I said, and bring a friend with you. And so they came together. We spent three hours. What do you say? You talk up. Don't talk down. down. My dad taught me one thing. You always talk up to people in the world. You never talk down to them. You're no better than they are. You may be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You may have been saved. You may no longer be an alcoholic. You may no longer be whatever. But you talk up to people. Blessed is the man or the woman who understands they're poor in spirit. Talk up. And so, uh, after about three hours of interchanging, and uh, did we talk about things? Yeah, we were honest with each other. But one thing he knew is that any time he comes to Buffalo, I want to see him. I don't know if you disagree with me theologically, but I said to him, I would consider it an honor because he still professes Christ to break bread with you and have communion. Maybe you have a hard time with that. Isn't that what Jesus did at the centurion? Do we keep people away from us because we think we're better than they are? Jesus, I pray that the emotion of heaven shall sweep the earth. The mercy of heaven shall saturate the church. The culture of heaven will fill the earth with the glory of God. I pray that the wonder of the tears of heaven that are on the face of the Lord, our Lord. I, I think Jesus weeps, not because we're sinners, but because we don't accept sinners like he did. She'll be transferred from his face to mine. Jesus, most of all, I pray that you will give me your heart. That in his essence, if we're going to have a revival among the millennials of our nations, it's going to happen because of the culture of love, honor, and acceptance and respect. That is the church the world waits for today. This church gets high marks for that already. May he purify you until you touch your city and your nation for God. Let's pray. Jesus, give me your heart. May I feel toward the people you love like you feel. May I honor them as you honor them. I think of you, Lord, when you were here. You had the perfection of God that was not an evil thought that you ever thought until you became part of our world. And we exposed you to, to us. 
to our ways and to our thinking. And yet among us, you kept such purity that you embraced all of us. And the church sent you to the cross because we didn't think like you. May we never crucify you again. May we be a people of love, a people who spread the gospel, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the wonder of a Savior who came with his arms so far outstretched around us that we nailed him to a cross. May your house become a house of prayer. The kind of house of Mother Teresa. Not that we compromise anything. We don't have to compromise because we represent you. At the same time we represent your holiness, we also represent your embrace. And may we never confuse one with the other. Make us a church for this is the day the Lord hath made. We will, our Lord, rejoice and be glad in it. In Jesus' name.